The number of people who have dementia is predicted to rise to epidemic proportions by the middle of this century. By then, 147,000 people in New Zealand are expected to have the disease, of which Alzheimer's is the most common type. In the face of such a big challenge for the community and health services, this Radio New Zealand Insight programme by Sue Ingram looks at what's being done. Access is through a swipe card, as you can see. This is Duncan Lodge. So each bedroom has its own ensuite, toilet and shower. And this rest home in Wellington cares for 24 people who have dementia. Duncan Lodge is the new dementia unit at Sprott House. It's only been open a matter of months and its general manager, Carol Hazelman, has borrowed many ideas from Australia to bring the facility up to date. It's all about quality of life. It's providing a, an environment like this which you hope aesthetically is nice, physically nice to sit in and pleasant to look at rather than the old institutionalised areas that we used to have to deal with, which was barbaric. Around 60% of people in residential care are thought to have some form of dementia, of which Alzheimer's disease is the most common. But many people with dementia still live at home and are cared for by family members. In total, around 41,000 people in New Zealand are estimated to have the disease, a figure that's set to increase dramatically. At a recent conference in Wellington organised by the support group Alzheimer's New Zealand, the projected rise was spelt out. By 2050, we're going to get 25% of the over 65s with this ageing disease. By 2026, an estimated 75,000 people will have dementia, and by 2050, an estimated 147,000 will be affected. The figures, calculated in a report on the economic impact of dementia, are based on an ageing population. It's a global trend worrying health experts around the world. Peter Baum is a former health minister in Australia. It's like a tsunami we can see now some distance away. But it is a tsunami and it will arrive. And we know what effects it's going to have. Dementia is now the third commonest recorded cause of death in my country. And by mid-century, it's going to be the commonest. There is growing awareness of what's called early-onset Alzheimer's. This is when the disease is diagnosed before the age of 65. But the majority of people who develop dementia are in an older category. David Ames, the director of the National Ageing Research Institute in Australia, described to conference delegates some of the known risks for developing dementia. Between 60 and 65, you might have a 1 in 100 chance, but over 85, it might push up towards 1 in 4. And if you live to be 100, 7 out of 10 people might be affected by a dementing illness. But you can't do much about your age. We know that if you're one of the 1 in 4 Caucasian people around who carry the APOE Epsilon 4 gene, then you've got a three times higher chance of having Alzheimer's disease at any age than somebody who doesn't. 
We know that because women live longer and tend to be healthier than men, once they get Alzheimer's disease, they're more likely to live longer with it, and they're more likely to live into the age groups that get it. They may also be more at risk even when you allow for these things, but again, you can't do much about uh, changing that particular risk factor. There are a few modifiable risk factors, like head injury, which countries like Australia and New Zealand have done something about by introducing seatbelt legislation and other road safety measures many years ago, and there are vascular risk factors such as smoking, hypertension, diabetes, which are being addressed but remain a constant challenge. The stereotype of someone with dementia, of which Alzheimer's disease is the most common type, is of a frail pensioner confined to a hospital bed. But this tends to be true only for the late stages of the illness. Nonetheless, the progressive changes the disease brings to memory, concentration, everyday skills and reasoning can be profound. In September 2000, my husband forgot my birthday. That marked the beginning of our journey. Eileen Smith describes how the disease has affected her husband, Ray. Earlier in the year, he'd mentioned to his GP that he was having problems with his memory. Oh, you're just getting older, he was told. He was 53 at the time. So we went to get a second opinion and then to a neurologist. For the first year, with the help of the drugs, he was able to continue working part-time at the job he loved. And at this point, the changes were slow and subtle. I was so busy working and organising his day that I didn't see how much he was deteriorating and how exhausted I was becoming. If he went out, he left not only the front door open, but wide open. Then he forgot which way to look when he crossed the road. He was also losing his balance and one day fell backwards through a ranch slider. Luckily, I was at home. After another assessment and two days after his 60th birthday, Ray was admitted to care. The prevalence of dementia means many people know someone with the disease, often a family member. Frequently, Alzheimer's is called a living death, although this annoys Richard Taylor, a Texan who travels widely, speaking about how the disease affects him. People with dementia are whole human beings. We are not fading away. We are not half full. We call Alzheimer's the long goodbye. And in fact, we say that in front of people with dementia. It's a reason, I believe, why we don't go and visit with people after they've been diagnosed with dementia. Who wants to go say goodbye to somebody every day? We are whole human beings. We still hear the same things that you hear. We still see the same things that you see. But we interpret them a little differently. Our processors don't work quite like your processors. We're different. And you assume because we're different, that we're not all there. Dementia, of which there are many forms, isn't contagious. But every day, memory lapses often prompt jokes about having Alzheimer moments, humour perhaps that hides private fears. Consultant clinical psychologist Dryden Badenoch works with people with memory problems in Waikato at the District Health Board's Memory Clinic. He says the early symptoms of dementia can seem worryingly familiar. You would probably notice, first of all, is slips of memory, forgetting people's names, forgetting where you've put things, forgetting routes to familiar places. 
and all of these could be ordinary lapses of memory, could be things that anyone would encounter in the, the course of the day. But as time goes by, you might begin to see a pattern that they're occurring more frequently than you would expect. People are beginning to comment that someone doesn't seem as uh, on the ball as they were, they seem more forgetful. It becomes maybe the source of a few jokes. And then you may start seeing more problems with skills. It may be that in the course of cooking, you find yourself needing recipe books, you find yourself burning pots. In driving, you may find yourself getting lost, not being able to find your way back. Finances, you may find yourself wondering whether bills have been paid or find yourself paying bills twice. So when should people become concerned about moments of forgetfulness? The time to worry is, as I say, when other people start commenting on it. The time when it's getting in the way of you living your life, doing your work. If it's the case that you find yourself walking into a room and wondering why you went in there, because you were thinking about what you were going to do next or what you were doing previously, then that's not a cause for worry. When you set your mind to going into a room and you have no pressure on you, no support on you, and by the time you get into the room, the reason for going into the room is gone, that's when you might start to worry. Professor of Ageing David Ames says there is no perfect test that can detect dementia, at least in a living person, and health professionals don't always get the diagnosis right. Anecdotal evidence suggests that local family doctors find it hard to diagnose dementia, can be reluctant to do so, and may face some difficulty finding specialists to whom they can refer someone. Peter Baum, a former Minister of Health in Australia and presently the chairman of the Alzheimer's Association in New South Wales, says this is regrettable as people with an early diagnosis can be supported in the community. Some medical practitioners, I first tried, take an unfortunate nihilistic view about dementia. Now they know it's an undesirable and fatal disease and they don't want to have to make the diagnosis until they have to. They don't want to address some of the vexed questions associated with legal competence, with employment, with driving, and they don't want to offend their patients And again and again, they don't listen to complaints from significant others that something is wrong. Richard Taylor says in theory, early diagnosis should be beneficial, but in reality, its value is more ambiguous. Once you have the diagnoses, just the words, you have dementia, just the fact you hear those words is so profound for people, it changes, it shuffles the whole deck, that in and of itself. And there are no uh, pharmacological supports that are going to make a significant difference in your life one way or the other if you're diagnosed or not. There's some things, some actions you can take if you knew that you had dementia. I mean, you should have a will and you should have a power of attorney and blah, blah, blah. But most people, that's the first thing they do is they rush out to do that as if tomorrow you may be blathering and you won't be able to sign your name on this. What people really need is human contact with other people who have dementia. We become isolated from everyone 
And it's so rare to sit in a room full of people with dementia when you have dementia. So to the extent that a diagnosis would lead to that, then it would be useful to have a diagnosis. But unfortunately, that's not what happens. Richard Taylor, who worked as a psychologist before developing Alzheimer's, believes diagnosing dementia would be much easier if everyone was screened at the age of 50. What happens to most people is you go to your doctor and you say, well, I think I'm forgetting more. My wife says this, my kids say that. And he gives you a battery of tests, but he has nothing to compare that to. He doesn't know what your baseline was. So what happens with most people is we wait until you're so deep into dementia and your life is deteriorated so, but you're still safe. So we talk to our mom on the phone and we know she's a little bewildered. She doesn't quite understand who I am or what's going on. We hang up and we say, well, mom's having a bad day today, but she still seems safe. And we let people struggle with that. People that we love struggle with that. Dryden Badenoch, who works at Waikato's Memory Clinic, believes a baseline test of a person's brain ability would be helpful, but not easy to do. One of the difficulties is taking enough time to do a detailed enough test in order to give reasonable information, especially because the majority of the tests that are available would obviously be affected by the practice of taking this test each year. But even if it was the case that we had one baseline measurement, it would be one more than we've already got. There's no cure for dementia, and while there are a handful of drugs prescribed for treatment, they only relieve some symptoms for some people for a period of time. They are mainly helpful to those with mild to moderate Alzheimer's disease. New Zealanders taking the medication have to pay the full price for it themselves, at least for now, at a cost of up to $300 a month. That's to change shortly after an announcement by the country's drug-buying agency Pharmac that it will fully fund a generic version of Dinepacil. Costs for patients will be slashed once it's registered for use here by Medsafe. Medical Director Peter Moody says Pharmac agonised for years over the decision. We had to ask ourselves two questions. How much was the gain? And the gain can be fairly difficult to assess. But what would we not be able to fund if we funded Alzheimer's drugs at $32 million? Dinepacil belongs to a class of drugs called cholinesterase inhibitors. They can slow the progression of Alzheimer's disease in some patients, but experts say it's difficult to know who will respond well to them. Wellingtonian Kate Clark, who was diagnosed with Alzheimer's seven years ago when she was 52, credits her ability to still hold a conversation to the medication. There's one that's very, very good. It's a lot of money, but it's, it works extremely well. That's the human brain. You get it for nothing. It stays with you your whole life. You are what your brain makes you are. The tragedy is, it's diseases sometimes, and that's a bugger. Professor Richard Fall, based at Auckland University, is at the forefront of international research into brain disease. He described to delegates at the Alzheimer's conference what takes place in the brain of someone with dementia. When you look inside the brain, you see there's two major types of pathology which we see at the end of the line of people who have died with Alzheimer's disease. They have these processes going on inside the cell which are bad news. We call them neurofibrillary tangles. We get tangles as if someone's poured cement into the cells, you see. 
and the fibrillary system gets all messed up. The system of railways, which goes up and down the cells, transporting all the vital chemicals, all the vital agents that keep cells alive. These, we get hyperphosphorylated tau deposits. That's the technical name for it all. But the cells actually get clogged up and die with inside. And then we have these changes within the cell. Then we have these extracellular accumulations of this beta amyloid debris. I call them the little cemeteries in the brain which contain the debris of the dead, dying cells and all the rest of it. So that's the end stage of the disease. And in a way, we still don't quite know how this begins. If we could slow down the progression of Alzheimer's, that would be great. Stopping it would be beautiful. But even if you slowed it down by 5, 10, 15 years, that would be incredible. Professor Fall says one of the exciting new avenues is the discovery that the brain can make new cells, just not enough to replace significant damage. If you take rats, put them into a stimulating and enhanced environment, give them running wheels, give them little bits of paper to tear up, little mazes to run around, they make about 25 to 50% more brain cells. The same thing must happen in humans. And if you run the animals, if you exercise the animals, they make more brain cells. It's a powerful stimulant. But if you stress their exercise, they'll make less brain cells. So you see, life's all about balances. But what this says is that we no longer now have to believe that we cannot repair our brains, that we cannot make new brain cells. Throughout life, we can. We know the brain cells are no longer just static cells, but they keep changing throughout their whole life. The more stimulation you have, they grow more of those little dendrites. Your brain is forever changing. Hmm. Client's initial request for a barrel. Hmm. Um, let's see. Ten across. Miss Tour representative. One in uniform. Doing crosswords, playing Sudoku, keeping the brain active. These types of stimulation have for years been touted as a way to stave off Alzheimer's. Professor David Ames says, unfortunately, there's little hard data yet to prove whether these and various other theories work. However, memory training, mental stimulation, a good diet and keeping physically active are all gaining currency as ways of trying to prevent dementia developing. Don Milham, an exercise physiologist at the Waikato Institute of Technology, has worked on a longitudinal study involving people with Alzheimer's in the U.S., the research looked at the impact of an exercise regime during which participants at a rest home did 30 minutes of activity three times a week for 12 weeks. We found some significant changes in cognition. Balance had a huge increase, as did mobility. Exercise that has been physically active decreased the rate of falls, 57%. That's amazing. Don Milham says the study illustrates the positive effects exercise can have in the elderly and supports the theory that physical activity can lessen the symptoms of Alzheimer's disease and may delay its onset. This kind of research has important financial implications. In 2008, a study on the economic impact of dementia commissioned by Alzheimer's New Zealand estimated that if the entry to institutional care for people with the disease was delayed by three months... This would have saved nearly $32 million. Progression of the disease happens at different rates for different people. However, by the time a person reaches the severe stage of dementia, they need continual supervision and will often need the specialist care of a dementia unit. Hello, Alice. 
You're nice indeed. Carol Hazelman is the general manager of Sprott House in Wellington, which has just rebuilt its dementia unit. Sprott was getting beyond its sell-by date, it was old, it was tired, and it needed to come into this new 21st century with purpose-built design rather than um, the old concept, you need a long corridor with rooms off it. A new approach to dementia care is evolving. The buzz phrase is person-centred care. It's aimed at improving the quality of care in rest homes, encouraging daily activities and routines, putting emphasis on the person, not the disease. So this, this particular area is the dining room. The residents are encouraged to wash the dishes. The ladies love to come in with their, their brush and sweep up and to dry the dishes. They then go off to the main kitchen area to be properly sterilised. But it's about allowing as much normal activity as possible. At St Andrew's Village in Auckland, Grace O'Sullivan, a consultant occupational therapist, has incorporated many ideas she found in dementia care overseas. Locked doors have been eliminated wherever possible so that residents can wander freely both indoors and out. Independent wayfinding is facilitated by visual cues and landmarks in the corridors. Bedroom doors are visually distinctive with easy-to-read nameplates, photos and pictures of personal significance. Toilet doors are painted red for easy identification. Small lounges have been created to produce a warm and inviting environment. St Andrew's Village is among a number of rest homes changing their use of antipsychotic drugs. These medications have traditionally been used to try to stop or suppress difficult behaviour, but growing awareness of negative side effects has created debate about their use. Dwayne Crombie is the chief executive of Bupa, one of the large private providers of residential aged care in this country. One of the issues that we face at the moment is just whether or not we're using those kinds of drugs as a form of chemical restraint. And that may seem you know, pretty evocative and pretty emotive, but medicine, and in particular psychiatry, has had a somewhat cloudy past about controlling people's behaviour that you know, some parts of the community find challenging. And I suppose one of the issues here is we've just got to be clear about whether these kinds of drugs are actually benefiting the resident or whether they're benefiting other people's perceptions of things. Bupa is aiming to reduce the use of antipsychotic drugs by 10% and in the long term by up to 50%. Grace O'Sullivan says St Andrew's Village in Auckland has already decreased their use and has seen a positive response. To begin with, we targeted residents on low doses and monitored their behaviour over several weeks. When nothing untoward happened, we became more confident. With the passage of time, not only staff members but family began to notice a difference in the residents. They were more alert, cooperative and interested in what was going on around them. In fact, one man's son came in specially to thank me. He wanted me to know that for the first time in nearly two years, he felt he was able to connect with his father and have a conversation of sorts. The number of falls in the unit went down by more than 50% in one year. The dementia unit at Sprott House in Wellington has eliminated the use of antipsychotic drugs in all but five of their 24 residents. General Manager Carol Hazelman says the reduction isn't only good for their residents, Sprott House also saves money by not having to buy so many drugs. That's important in an area which, according to rest home providers, is underfunded. Rest homes receive money from the government for providing care to older people who fall within the asset testing threshold. 
The amount varies depending on the category of care. But Carol Hazelman says the funding for people with dementia is significantly less than needed. Unfortunately, for some reason, dementia funding is the same as rest home level funding. And if you think of a resident that requires rest home level care, that is minimum assistance. So there's sort of semi-independent, but they just need that little bit of supervision to help to get dressed and showered. Dementia care is a total different category again. The staff have to be highly trained. That's a huge cost. The environment has a lot of wear and tear. There's a lot of maintenance, a lot of repairs, a lot of cost in that. And a lot of cost just generally in the provisions that they require, the specialist skills. So there's a huge disparity. The New Zealand Aged Care Association, which represents the operators of residential facilities, says demand for dementia care is outstripping supply. Its chief executive, Martin Taylor, says in some regions people are having to shift out of their communities to find a place in a rest home or have to be put on a waiting list. He says the fees for dementia care do not encourage the provision of new facilities and extra beds. The only answer to the shortage of beds in the medium to long term is for the market to build more beds. The problem is we have a capped fee structure and we have an asset regime which allows people to keep a significant amount of their income whilst they are taking a lot of government resources. That is the conversation. That is the key conversation. We're in the middle of a recession. It's very hard for a government to say, we're going to increase the fee by X amount in order to encourage the market to build. That is probably the only way that it's going to happen. But the solution sits with a conversation between the government, the providers and the DHBs. That's the only way we can get that solution. The Minister of Health, Tony Ryle, says the asset testing regime is going to remain unchanged. He says the government is taking the projected increase in dementia cases very seriously and he expects more investment to take place in the sector over the next 18 months. The lesson of age residential care is that they always say there's no cash in the system. You know, These are people running businesses so they'll always say that. But there is a point uh, that we do need to send a clear message about more dementia beds and in particular development of secure dementia units. Tony Ryle says a project to identify supply and demand issues is being undertaken by healthcare providers and district health boards. He hopes it will identify what needs to be done to encourage the provision of new dementia units. That report is expected to be finalised in August. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the New Zealand Parliament. Earlier this year in the Banquet Hall in Parliament, Alzheimer's New Zealand launched a national dementia strategy. Board member Nigel Wynne, himself diagnosed with Alzheimer's, summed up its aims. Amongst its eight main objectives, the strategy covers the importance of early diagnosis, access to affordable medications, appropriate residential care and respite services, family and care support, workforce development, raising public awareness. Top of the list is to have dementia recognised as a national health priority, but the Health Minister, Tony Ryle, does not believe this is necessary. At the moment we've got, oh, I think, about 13 or 16 health priorities set out uh, in the Ministry of Health. Uh, frankly, many people would say that there are so many priorities that none are priority. 
What I can tell you is that we consider dementia to be one of the biggest challenges that the health service will face over the next 10 to 15 years and the government is taking it very seriously and doing a lot of work on it. It is one of our key areas that we want to make progress on in the next 18 months. Tony Ryle accepts that at a time of financial constraint, meeting the increased need is going to be a challenge. The danger is that if health services don't meet that challenge, the burden will fall on individuals in the community, those taking care of loved ones with dementia. That Radio New Zealand Insight programme was written and presented by Sue Ingram. More Insight podcasts can be downloaded at radionz.co.nz forward slash insight.